Welcome to the sermon podcast of Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Our mission is to respond to God's love by following Jesus and loving God, loving one another, and serving the world. If you're in Knoxville, we'd love for you to join us in person. In the meantime, enjoy this message from God's Word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the way that it speaks not only to our lives, but to our hearts. Thank you that it is your spirit that makes it alive and that I can stand confident, not because of my words, but because it's your words. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would fall fresh on us and open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to your word, because you alone have the words of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I get the privilege to fill in for James today as we've been going through these searching psalms as just a reminder for you. These psalms that the pastoral search team had come up with and encouraged us as the congregation to pray for and to pray through as we see what was God doing in the midst of that? What are the lessons that we have that we need to learn as we move forward to this next season in the life of the church? And for today, it's this idea of hope. We are to be a hopeful people. We find ourselves in Psalm 130, even in verse seven, it says, hope, O Israel, in the Lord, to put your hope in him. So we're gonna look at how he calls us to do that. A little background on Psalm 130. Um, it is one of the songs of ascent. It was what Israel, the songs they would sing as they would go up the hill to go to Jerusalem when they would go for the feasts, go for the celebrations when they would sing together. And this is a Psalm that was important to John Wesley. It's part of his conversion story. He was at a Vesper service where they sang this Psalm and it showed up in his heart as God's grace and mercy. And then Martin Luther says of this Psalm, it's a Pauline Psalm. If the apostle Paul would have written Psalms, this would be one of them because it shows this beautiful picture of grace and salvation by faith alone, not in our own effort, but in what God does for us. But what I love about this psalm is that it speaks to a wide variety of people. You know, as people, we love to categorize ourselves in different ways. We're type A or type B. We've got Enneagram numbers. We've got different personality types and things. We're golden retrievers and otters and all kinds of crazy nonsense. But there's also this idea of being kind of left-brained and right-brained. And the left brain people, the folks who are analytical, they love a process. They love things just so, I really can you know, understand those people. And then there's the right brain people who are artistic and they love to see the beauty in life and they need pictures to understand. And what I love about this Psalm is it gives us both. God who created all people is gonna speak to all people. He's gonna give us a process and he's gonna give us pictures. So we can fully grasp and understand exactly what he's doing in the midst of that to show us his move towards forgiveness and redemption for us. So let's start with the idea of pictures. What, you know, what do we always say? A picture's worth a thousand words. Let's say that I said to you, I used to work for about 20 years on the side with a middle school camp, loving kids with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or I could show you a picture of us after the color war one time. I wasn't supposed to be covered in color and yet I was. I could tell you I love Christmas. That would be helpful, right? Or I could show you my Christmas suit, which some of you got to experience at the drive-in. There's, there's a little difference to say I love Christmas and you get to look at that thing of beauty, I guess. I don't know what you even call that. I can say, I can tell you how important missions was in my heart and in my life and how it's helped me to grow. And then I show you a picture of this. And for those of you that the masks are complicated as you worship, I get it, I'm sorry. 
That thing doesn't breathe. And I'm Captain America, not Captain Hungary, by the way. This was when we were going to proclaim the gospel with American culture and English in Budapest, Hungary among students. And for me, one of the greatest sacrifices ever was in that suit. It doesn't breathe. You can't see. It's tighter than it looks. And I had to very strategically place that shield during all the dancing and skit portion (laughs) for lots of reasons. But if I said I love missions, this doesn't do it justice. If I say that God speaks to me through creation and I show you pictures of sunsets and sunrises that I've gotten to experience and getting to see the beauty of who God is. Or if I just say, I love to laugh and I love having great people in my life. And I love the things that God gives us when we have community. I'll show you my last picture with that. Because Jeremy Johnson is an angel is one of my favorite things of all time. So any opportunity to show that picture, I just do. So those pictures tell us something, but for those of us that are more, you know, kind of the left brain, the process, here's the process we're gonna see today in this Psalm, okay? We become aware of our need. We acknowledge our need by crying out to him and waiting on him instead of trying to do it on our own. And then we experience his redemption. That's the process we're gonna see. We're gonna see God's process. We're also gonna see the pictures that go along with it. So it starts with awareness. It's the first thing that we're going to see is we need to be aware. He says that right out of verse one. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you. Now, I want to be very sensitive because for some of you, the idea of swimming or drowning, you have understood that tragedy in so many different difficult ways. And so I'm so sorry for that. So I'm not trying to trigger that. But what I want us to do is to see what God's word's telling us. And when he says out of the depths, what he means is this. We are out in the dangerous part of the winds and the waves, and we have no hope. There's no place to put our foot on. There's no place to swim to. We are stuck out in the middle all by ourselves. And we wonder, what is he talking about? A difficult situation? Could be. But we see in verse 2, what he cries out for is mercy. Not deliverance, but mercy. So the picture really is, this is how we are in our sin. We are separated out, overwhelmed. We can feel the water coming. We feel like we're going to go down and can't get back up. We feel like there's no hope for us that we're stuck out in the middle. And God wants us to understand that is how it feels like. Our sin is huge and it's immense. And we can find ourselves drowning in it. But this specific picture is a guy named Brett Archibald. I don't know if you know his story or not. A few years ago, he was on a cruise outside Indonesia with some buddies of his. Started to get seasick at 2.30 in the morning. He goes outside to be polite, to get sick over the rail, hits a bump in the water and gets tossed into the water. It took six hours for anyone on the boat to know he was gone and took 29 hours for them to find him. And he writes this story of what he experienced and what he felt out in the deep, out in the waves. The first, he was, it was shock. It was, I'm waking, this is a dream. I'm gonna wake up, I'm gonna be back in my bunk room. And then it was anger and frustration. How could they not know? How could they not notice? Then it became just fighting for his life, fighting off sharks and other things, trying to stay afloat, the hunger, the thirst. There was a crying out for anything he heard, hoping for rescue. There was a moment when a boat drove by but couldn't see him. 
until at the very end, he talks about just the sheer hopelessness of it all. There was nothing I could do. I was at the mercy of someone finding me. That's the picture of us. We need to get to a place of awareness of our own sin. I think it's important for us to think about grace and mercy, absolutely in abundance. But at times we lose sight of the fact of what that mercy and grace are to cover for us, which is our great sin and our great need. We need to have a new awareness of our sin, that our sin does overwhelm us. Our sin is mightier than us, but is not as deep as his grace and as his mercy. And when he was aware, when the psalmist is aware of his sin, aware of this difficult circumstance, he decides to cry out to the Lord. And this kind of the tense of the verb cry out is, I have cried out and I will continue to cry out over and over again with this confidence that I will cry out because he hears me. Because he listens, because he knows. And what I love is the way he cries out. He cries out, Lord, he uses it almost in every verse. You'll see it in there. But there's two different words for Lord that he uses. In one, three, four, five, and seven, he uses the word Yahweh, the personal name God gave to Moses, that God gave to Israel, the loving covenantal God, the God who was known by his people and known to his people. He cries out to him and says, my God, Yahweh, the one who knows me, hear my cry. But he also calls out to Adonai in verses two and six, this powerful God, this one who created things, the one who can do something about it. That in the same place where we just translate in English, Lord, we get this beautiful picture of one who cries out, not just to one who's powerful and doesn't care, or not just to one who cares but can't do anything about it, but one who can do both. Who loves and longs to answer and can do something about it. And it starts with an awareness that we can't do it on our own. We can't paddle hard enough or fast enough. We are stuck in our situation. And some of it is our own creation by our own sin. And some of it is the sin of others. We find ourselves with the consequences of that as well. Drowning out in the depths, crying out for hope and help and salvation, which leads us to the second part, which is an acknowledgement and a confession. What does he say? He says to him, if you kept a record of wrongs, God, no one could stand. No one has a hope. No one has a chance. And the picture he's giving us is the picture of a courtroom standing before a judge that if right now today God was sitting behind the judge bench and you were at the defendant's table and he was to read the list of all the charges against you, you would be so overwhelmed by it all the things you know, and the thousands, nay, millions of things you don't know. So the psalmist says, if, we were to, if you were to keep a record of sins, to have a list of them, no one could stand before you. You are perfect and you are holy. And we get that and we understand that. And even the world, those who would never claim Christ will acknowledge if there's a God and he's holy, I'm in trouble. But where does that lead us? Does it lead us to a confession of sin or does it lead us to despair? Does it lead us to say, well, the heck with it, then I'm just gonna go live my life. 
What does he do? He acknowledges something else. He doesn't just acknowledge his need. He acknowledges God's character. But with you, there is forgiveness. He cries out saying, I know that my sin has put me here. I know that I have no hope on, in and of myself. I know that I'm not like counting on my good confession to do anything, but I call out to the one who not only does forgive, but is forgiveness. Not could be, not might be, or not will be. There's a sense in which like, well, maybe he'll forgive. I don't know, maybe he could, he might. Or, you know, I know he'll forgive one day. I know in the last days, all my sins will be forgiven. What he says in this moment with God, there is present tense today forgiveness. Later today, we're gonna sit, we're gonna confess our sins to the Lord. And if you are in Christ, guess what? Forgiven. You can walk out of this room as a forgiven person, guaranteed. And the beauty of that, the beauty that we can be forgiven, not because of anything that we do in and of ourselves, but because of what he has done. And it helps us during this season. When we go to Ash Wednesday, we think about Lent, a time when we do confess our sins, a time we do think about our sins, and we do it in order that we can see just how costly and valuable grace and mercy are. I learned a few years ago, I used to just kind of confess generally. I'd confess my sins when I felt like it's like, Lord, just forgive me everything, whatever I did. There's a whole bunch of stuff. I don't even want to think about it. Just go. And there's nothing wrong with that. He tells us to confess our sins. I'm not here to tell you there's a right or wrong way to do it. I can only tell you in my own heart, when I started to confess my sins specifically to the Lord, man, I got a new understanding of his grace when I've lost it with one of my kids and in that moment, I feel it. I feel that guilt and frustration. I confess it to him and to them. It's different. When I go throughout my day and there's moments when I've done the stuff I know I shouldn't or haven't done the things I know I should and I confess it in that moment, rather than at the end of the day, just asking for confession, it has helped me to see his deep love for me that he does forgive all of our sins, but he forgives each and every one of our individual sins confess them to him. There's this confession point. I can't do anything, but you can. And that leads us to waiting. The worst, hardest, most difficult part for most of us, it's the waiting. It's the, I've confessed. I know God's forgiven me, but everything hasn't been made right yet. There's still things and issues and problems that go on. And what's so great is the psalmist in the first four verses is talking to God has now turned his attention onto himself. I will wait. The only way that we're willing to wait is if we wait expectantly. It's not this kind of resigned, well, I guess I have nothing else to do, but it's this hopeful God's gonna do something. I believe with him is forgiveness. I believe there is redemption. I believe he is loving. I believe he is powerful so I can wait on him because I trust him even more than me. But when we say that we wait, it says a couple things. One, I can't do anything on my own. And two, I can't make God work any faster than he does. 
And for those of you now in a season of life where you feel like you're drowning, where you feel like it's all too much, it's not a lot of solace in the moment of just wait it out. That's hard. It's hard for us in those places and spaces. As we've looked on our staff this year, we've had so much as so many people have had this year. We've had so many deaths in our staff amongst family members. One person who's had three different people in their close family die. We've had strokes and we've had emergency surgeries and other surgeries and kids who are struggling. It has been a very difficult year as it has for everyone. But it's that confidence to continue to wait that I believe is God is bigger and stronger and he loves me and he cares for me and there's something good that will come out of all of it. And that's hard to believe in the moment. But this picture of waiting that he gives us is the city wall. Now for us in our context, it's kind of complicated. It doesn't make sense. We don't have these things today. But back then in those days, what happened is the city would have a wall around it to protect itself from its enemies. And at nighttime, it would station people along different parts of the wall as the watchmen to watch for enemies. A lonely, hard, frustrating job. You stay up all night while everyone else is sleeping comfortably, quietly in their beds under the peace of your protection. But as a watchman, what you long for more than anything else is the morning to come. Because when the morning comes, the rest of the army's awake, the rest of the people are awake, they can all defend themselves. But if it happens at the night, it's just me. But the beauty in that picture for us is they were waiting on something that was guaranteed to come. It would be morning. Nothing could stop morning from coming. And the sad part is nothing could make it come any quicker. So when it says that we wait on the Lord, we're waiting with great expectation because we know it's guaranteed to happen. We know not only does he forgive us, we know he's gonna make all things right and new one day. We can wait on that which we already have in Christ. That we know it is as sure as dawn tomorrow that this will happen. But the hard part for most of us is we get impatient in the waiting. I don't want God to teach me any more lessons in this season. I get it. I've got it. I'm full up. But the truth is, that's what he does. He shows his character. He shows us his love that we may trust him in the hardest places of our lives. Because the hard part is this. We can't write the glory of our story while we're still drowning. We don't get to write the goodness and greatness of who God is while we're still in the midst of it. It's not until the other side and we have to wait. We wait on the truth of who he is, on the truth of his word. We wait because he knows that he's at work. And then the last picture for us is this picture of redemption. Last part of the process is we wait for there to be redemption. He now turns his attention. Again, the psalmist was talking to God in verses one through four, himself, five through six. Now he talks to Israel, put your hope. It is this declarative command statement. Put your hope in the Lord. He's saying, I've experienced this. I've gone through this. I know what it's like. You can have it too. You can understand his forgiveness. You can understand his redemption. You can understand his love and his power towards you. Come be a part of this with me. 
And what's beautiful is he says, now put your hope in his steadfast love and in his redemption. It's those two things that are with God all the time. It says with him, steadfast love, with him, redemption. And that's where our picture comes, this picture of redemption. If you understand what redeeming is, at this time, it was when someone paid a debt for someone else. Now that could be a slave at the slave market, but could also be one who was put in debtor's prison. You'll remember the unforgiving servant, that parable that Jesus told when the person couldn't pay this small amount, he said, put him in prison until he works it off. To the pictures of us in prison, been imprisoned by our sin, imprisoned by all the things of this world, but we have the opportunity to be redeemed because he himself will redeem. He himself will pay the price. He himself sets us free. And we see that picture in Jesus Christ. He came, he took the weight of all of our sin, present, past, future, took it on himself, paid the price for our redemption. He has made us new. He has freed us from the jail. He has said, you are now my people. Chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee, that beautiful picture of his forgiveness for us, but also that he is making us new. He's bought us into new people so that we might live for him. Because what does it say that it leads to this forgiveness? Even in verse four, it says it leads to fear. Not what we would have expected that to happen. We'd expect love, we'd expect thankfulness, but fear, this reverence, this awe, this obedience, this worship. When we've been redeemed, we're new people with new affections and new desires and new mission. And what I love is what he says, it's plentiful redemption abundant, plenteous. It's an overwhelming amount. God doesn't have a, like a, a small bank account with which to buy us back from our sin. He has an unlimited amount. He spends all that is necessary to bring all to him for those that might trust in him. He has overwhelming, plentiful. He can forgive any sin and all sin. That beautiful picture for us. Do you, do you know what he does with our sin when he forgives us and when he redeems us? Let's look, just a couple like verses for you here. What does God do for us with our sin? Said he casts it behind his back, Isaiah 38. He sweeps away and blots them out, Isaiah 43. Separates him as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103. Casts him into the sea, Micah 7. Holds him against us no more, Jeremiah 31. When he redeems us, he takes our sin and obliterates it. That we are no longer bound and shackled by it anymore. But not only does he do that in our sin, he does that with our lives. He does that with the difficult and hard circumstances we face. But the hard part is part of that waiting is that may be at the last day. You may be in the midst of a terrible, awful, difficult situation. You can't get your breath. You feel like you're drowning. You think, is there any hope? There is hope. But that hope may be on the last day when he makes all things right. We talked about last week in this world, we will have trouble, but he has overcome the world. Another place we see this process play out was in our gospel reading. Think about that for a minute. A woman who knew she was sinful, everyone knew she was sinful. 
She was aware of her sin. She goes to Jesus. She's aware of who he is as well. She acknowledges not only his sin, but he can do something about it. She weeps over his feet, weeping over her sin, acknowledging it. She wipes his dirty feet with her hair. She takes this most expensive thing she owns. She anoints his feet with it. And then she waits. You notice in that story, Jesus deals with a lot of other people first. He's dealing with the Pharisee and his thoughts first. Here's what you're saying. Let me tell you a little story. Here's whatever else. And then in the context that he says, her sins, though many are forgiven. And then he looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. There's that moment of redemption. She has now been freed from her life of sin. Maybe a better picture for me is one of my really, really good friends in Memphis, one of the fellow pastor friend. Um, he and I hung out for years. I'm just really thankful for him. And on one time we're driving to go to lunch one time and we're in the middle of a conversation because we talk a lot together. And he goes, hey, hey, just, and just stops. And it's kind of odd. If you've ever been in the middle of a situation and someone cuts you off in mid-sentence and goes, just, just but stop. You're expecting like some like beautiful revelation. And he was quiet for like the next three or four minutes. It's like, this is kind of odd. This is weird. What is going on? And at the end, he goes, hey, I just, you know, you know my story, but part of what's going on is whenever I drive by the jail, I pray. Now, part of his story was he, in his earlier crazy wild days, when he was in college, he was selling drugs, got caught selling drugs, dead to rights, red-handed, no hope, had enough on him that it was a felony. He's sitting in prison and he is like, Lord, I, I haven't acknowledged you. I know about you, but I don't, I'm, I'm dead to rights. I have no hope at all. If you save me from this, I'm yours forever. One of those prayers, I think a bunch of people pray, but nobody means. He's like, if you save me from this. So a couple of days later, he's going and sitting before the judge and the judge just looks confused. And he takes the piece of paper and he starts hitting himself with the head with it. Like literally like kind of tapping his head. He's like, I never do this. He's like, I never do this. I don't even know why I'm about to do this. I don't ever do this, but I'm going to give you probation. And there was that moment where even the judge doesn't know what he's doing. And my friend hearing probation, of course, fills out his probation beautifully, does everything is required. Today, he's a pastor of a thriving church in Memphis. He has been a huge light in dark places. He has been a minister of the gospel to gang members and drug dealers, and people know Jesus because of him. And so every time he drives by the jail, he prays. Because I remember what God did for me in there. I was dead to rights. I was guilty. There was nothing I could do. Yet I pray that the Lord would have mercy. And he paid the price of that sin and all my sin. And he redeemed me to make me a new person that I might live for him. His story, though much more dramatic, is the same story as your story and my story. We were caught in our sin. There was nothing we could do. No price we could pay, no way out. We're aware of our sin. We go and acknowledge and confess that sin to the Lord. We wait on him to be at work as he offers his forgiveness to us. And then he redeems us to make us new. It's the hope that you and I have as we live each and every day. Let's pray to him. 
Father, we do thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy and abundance, your plenteous redemption for us. Thank you, Father. It's not because of anything we do in and of ourselves, but fully because of what your son does for us and has done for us. That even today we can come to you with our worries and concerns and we know that we can have hope. We know that we can be forgiven. We know that we can be made new and that you at one day will make all things new and we long for that day to come. Help us to pray expectantly as watchmen who wait for the morning, who know that you are near and know that you are powerful. Let us live out in the space of your love this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.